The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. This morning we're starting a new series called Adopted. Adopted. It's an interesting word. In, in our Western culture, it's not often considered a positive word. Um, many kids use this to tease their siblings and say, you're adopted, you know. And it's usually a put down. It's usually su- it suggests this idea that somehow being a true-born son or daughter is better than being an adopted. Uh, and somehow you're inferior, you're less than if you're adopted. And um, there's a lot of research being done ab- about people who've been adopted. And, and there's certainly real struggles about identity and rejection and a whole bunch of stuff for people who have been adopted. Uh, you don't see too many people walking around with t-shirts that say, I am adopted. Um, for that reason. But again, I think that kind of skews our understanding of the biblical doctrine of adoption if we think that way about what the Bible says about adoption. Because the Bible actually says radically different things about what it means for us to be adopted into God's family. It's profound. And so we're beginning this series. It's based on J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. Uh, One of his chapters there talks about being the sons of God, and it's all on adoption. And so I'm really, really excited. Our theme for this year has been growing, uh, growing in God, growing in our identity in Christ, growing in our impact and influence. And so I think that this series will really impact us and influence us to think about who we are in Christ and all that we have in Christ. And, uh, and I hope that it really stirs your heart and, and really encourages you and builds up your faith as we journey through this series. Uh, and so we're going to be teasing out, uh, I guess, the implications and the impact of this doctrine uh, on, on us as adoptees, as people who've been adopted into God's family. And so over these next, I think, six weeks, uh, we'll be engaging with each of those different facets individually as we go through. So this morning, it's a bit of an introduction. It's a bit of an overview. Um, and it's a bit of biblical theology. So we won't be kind of jumping into a particular text as such, but just kind of having a biblical overview on, uh, and on what this doctrine is about before we kind of drill down deeper into the specifics. So let me pray and we'll get into it. Father, we just want to thank you that we can call you that, Abba, Father. Uh, Lord, already you've been putting that on our heart with the songs we've been singing, with what Carolina shared around communion. Lord, this incredibly powerful, life-transforming truth that we are your children, sons and daughters of the King. Um, And Lord, so we pray that as we begin this series and as we come around your word now, that you will open our hearts to receive this truth, that it would be, um, Lord, a revelation that your spirit gives us so that we can walk away here, Lord, so encouraged and so built up in our faith because of who we are in Christ. And so we ask, will you help us as we journey through today through your word in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. So, some introductory thought. Three, I guess, foundational principles that we need to establish about adoption from the Bible. The first one is that it's um, an act of God's gracious love and election. Again, we've talked about this. It's based on God's love and election. That's the foundation. This incredible truth that God in His grace reaches out and chooses us. It's profound. We see that in, in verses like Ephesians. If you want to put those scriptures up, 
Uh, Ephesians 1, 4, 5, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, there it is, in love He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. 1 John 3, 1, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. It's, it's based in God's love. The second thing that's foundational, and again, the counterbalance of this first point is the second one, that it is a gift of grace that comes through faith to all who believe in Jesus. It's both. It's election and it's human choice. In 1 John, uh, sorry, John 1.12, we, we have this very, very famous verse, yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So it's based, the foundation is God's love, His elective grace, but then it's also a gift that the Father gives to all who believe in Jesus. The third really, really foundational principle that we need to grab a hold of is that when we are the children of God, we're not second rate. It, this idea of adoption is based on Roman law, where in Roman law, a, a rich benefactor would go out and find usually an adult to take in as their son. And that person that was taken in was given the full legal rights of a true-born son. That's the idea that's in the Bible. So for us, when we're adopted, we have the full rights and privileges of a genuine, naturally born child of the parents. That's incredible. And, and I love the fact that Carolina alluded to that in her prayer, that we have all the, the privileges and the rights that come from being God's adopted sons and daughters. And that's really, really profound as we, we unpack that over these next few weeks. So those three, three things are things we need to really, really hold on to in this broad definition and understanding of what the Bible means when it talks about adoption. So the next thing we need to engage with is this new relationship that we have in God, this new um, identity as God's children. Now, in the Old Testament, this idea of uh, adoption or God's fatherhood is hinted at in God's relationship with Israel. Uh, often there's allusions to Israel being God's son, um, called and chosen out of bondage and slavery to be in relationship with God. It's hinted at, but it comes into its fullest revelation in the New Testament, so much so that J.I. Packer says this, the, the revelation to the believer that God is his father is in a sense the climax of the Bible, just as it was the final step in the revelatory process which the Bible records. In other words, what he's saying is that this is the, the point that the Bible's narrative has been moving to. This is the, the climax, the end point that a Christian recognizes that they're a child of God. Uh, one definition of a Christian is that someone who has the almighty holy God as their loving father. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so we see this shift, this, this journey through the Old Testament into the New, where in the New Testament, this idea comes to a climax. So in the Old, we see these, these different things happening in the Old. So God's primary name that He reveals Himself by is Yahweh, or Jehovah, or the Lord with capital L-O-R-D, which is the English way of transliterating that Hebrew name. And, and the reason for that is that the covenant that was established between God and Israel was what they call a suzerain vassal covenant. Let me unpack that a little bit. 
So in, in the ancient Near East, one of the things that existed were these covenants, Susan and Vassal covenants. And what it meant was that a conquering king, when they went in and, I guess, triumphed in battle over a community or a nation, they would become the suzerain, the, the, benef- the benefacting king, the, the gracious king that would now rule over that community. They were the suzerain. And the vassal was these people that had been conquered that now gave their allegiance, their loyalty, their obedience to the new king. And there was these agreements that were made of how the people were to live and how the king was to care for the people. And if there was a violation of that covenant, there were consequences that went with that. So Deuteronomy is a classic example of a suzerain-vassal covenant agreement. That's how God revealed himself in the Old Testament. So we see that God is revealed as the great conquering, rescuing king who redeemed Israel out of Egypt. And because of that, Israel was supposed to be a loyal, obedient son or loyal, obedient subjects of this king. So God's character that was emphasized and focused in the Old Testament was what? Holiness, his greatness, and his otherness or his separateness. There were strict rules about who could come to God's presence, when they could come, and how they were supposed to come because he was very other, very separate. And so the human attitudes that were expected of the people were holiness, but humility, reverence, and awe. There was this sense of God was this terrible, awesome, fearsome one that we dare not trifle with or mess with or, you know, defy in any way. And so this theme that runs throughout the Old Testament is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when Israel rebelled, the prophet said, you've lost the fear of the Lord. So that's the Old Testament kind of covenant that was taking place. In the New Testament, there's a radical, radical shift. The, the name that God reveals himself by is Father. Father. And so everywhere in the New Testament, we see this idea of God revealing himself in terms of a family covenant. There's this idea that God is a loving Father and we are his loved sons and daughters. And so the, the impression and the, and the perception and the character of God that's focused on is His loving care, His closeness, His desire for relationship and intimacy, and His welcoming, uh, embracing love that calls people to come near. And so the, the human response to that is expected to be delight, intimacy, and boldness. Boldness. And so the the new expectation is not the fear of the Lord, but fellowship with the Father. Fellowship with the Father. So a radical, radical shift has taken place. A profound move from the God of the Old Testament to the God of the New. It's the same God. And all of the Old Testament ideas of God's holiness and His awesomeness are presupposed when we come into the new. That's what makes it so profound. It's not like it's a different God. It's the same holy, awesome, fearsome God who is righteous. And yet now he's saying, in Christ, because you've trusted in Jesus, I am to you now a loving Father. A loving Father. Uh, This is so profound that J.I. Packer unpacks it this way. And he compares 
justification, which is like the, the greatest Christian doctrine in some ways because it talks about our salvation with adoption. And he says this justification is a forensic or a legal idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. In justification, God declares of penitent or repentant believers that they are not and never will be liable to the death that their sins deserve. So amazing, profound But then he says, but in contrast, adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father in adoption. Here's what's awesome. God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. This is is awesome. That God, the holy righteous one, the one who rules the universe, the creator, the one who cannot be in the same presence of sin invites us into fellowship, invites us into relationship, invites us into intimacy because of Jesus, because of our faith in Jesus. We don't have to, as Carolina said, we don't have to stand far back in dread and in fear, but we can come near with eagerness and excitement and enthusiasm. We don't need to feel condemned or under the wrath or judgment of God. If we're in Christ, we are welcomed into relationship and intimacy and fellowship. So let's talk a little bit now about God as Father. God as Father. Now one objection that can be raised is, well, what about those people who've had abusive fathers or really bad fathers or had absent fathers or not even had a father at all who grew up without a father? Surely this is not a helpful doctrine for them. Surely this is not an easy thing for them to grapple and and wrestle with to see God as Father. Well, well, two things we can say in response to that. One is that even if that's true, that people have had a bad experience or not had a father, all of us intrinsically and relationally have a sense of how relationships ought to work in an ideal world. Let me unpack that. Even if you grew up in a home where your parents' marriage was dysfunctional, you had a sense of how that marriage probably ought to have been. Even if you had a friendship that was messed up and broken and unfaithful and and really hurtful, you would still know that that's not how things ought to be. And you would still know what an ideal friendship would look like. And it's the same of fatherhood. Even though you might have had an abusive father, in your heart you know that is not how this is supposed to be. And instead, you would have in your mind or in your heart some idea of, man, if, if, if my father was a perfect father, he would be like this. So we carry that in our hearts. So that's one thing. The other thing we can say in response to that objection is that God hasn't just left us to figure out what He's like as a father. He's not left us to kind of look at our earthly fathers as good or as bad as they are and go, oh, so that's what you're like. No. He's given us a perfect and full revelation of His fatherhood in His relationship to the incarnate Son. In his relationship to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, he's shown us what he's like as a father and what we can expect of him and how we can look to him to be our father. 
So um, in the book of John, for instance, it's probably the, the most detailed and specific description of God as Father to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can unpack this in more detail, but four things that are implied in God as Father come out of John's Gospel. And they are, one, that God is a Father whose fatherhood implies authority. Authority. And we see in John's gospel everywhere, Jesus saying, I've come to do my Father's will. So the Father is, is presented as the one who directs, who instructs, who governs, who has authority. And the Son submits willingly and joyfully and, and delightfully. But he's, he's there, Jesus says over and over again, to do his Father's will. Whatever the Father tells me I do, I am here to speak and to do what I see my Father doing. It's, it's an authoritative father relationship. God is, is a gracious authority figure, if you like. The second thing we understand from John's gospel is this idea of love. God's fatherhood implies deep, intimate, passionate love. We see Jesus using language like, you know, we abide in each other. Um, and this idea of mutual indwelling, of intimacy and, and deep sharing. And Jesus often says, I know that my Father loves me and I love my Father. And there is this beautiful picture of, of love that's characterized in the relationship between the Father and the Son. The third thing that we see is this idea of presence or this idea of fellowship or, or relationship that, that's permanent. Uh, Jesus says things like, you know, even if you all abandon me to the disciples, he says, I'm not alone because my Father is with me. This sense that wherever I go, no matter where I go, I know my dad's with me. I've got his presence always with me. And the Father and I, Jesus says, we are one. We are one. Speaks of this rich intimacy of relationship and abiding presence that Jesus till the cross never knew anything other than that his father was always with him and the last one is this idea of honor glorification where Jesus prays and the father talks about glorifying the son that it is the father's will and desire to exalt and to glorify and honor the son and we see that again and again and again in, in John's gospel we see that Christ is ironically glorified when he's crucified ultimately but all glory is is given by the father to the son and it's his desire to exalt and to elevate and to make much of the son now, here's the, the, the profound thing about all of this. And I've written this down because I really wanted to say it right. In, through, and under Jesus Christ our Lord, we too are ruled, loved, accompanied, and honored by our Heavenly Father in the same way that Jesus is. In the same way. In Christ, we are treated by our heavenly father the same way that the heavenly father treats the incarnate son that, that's mind-blowing that we too under christ are under the authority of our father that we too in christ are loved in the same intimate passionate way that the son is loved by the father that we too have the assurance that our Father will never leave us, never forsake us, that His presence is always, always, always with us. And that 
one day in Christ, we too will share in the glory of the Son. And the Father's delight will be to exalt and to glorify us as His sons and His daughters, to celebrate us and to say, look at my kids, aren't they amazing? That is our inheritance. That is the privilege that we have. That is the the right we have as the sons and the daughters of our Heavenly Father. So what does all this look from our end? We've considered this definition of how this adoption doctrine works, how God has brought this about. We've considered how this is a radical shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's the same God, but the way He relates to us has has changed, is different. We've considered what God looks like as a father uh, in how he has revealed himself to us as father, regardless of our earthly models, as good or as deficient as they might be. So what does it look like for us to be God's kids? What does it look for us to live this out as God's kids? Well, for, for this, we need to go to the Sermon on the Mount. And this is probably the best place to go to understand this. Because in in some ways, you can read the Sermon of the Mount as though this was the royal family code. As though Jesus is saying, this is how my family operates. This is how we're supposed to live as brothers and sisters, as children of Almighty God. Because throughout, Jesus' commands to obedience are centered in this doctrine of adoption. It's centered on God being our Father and we being God's kids. So it's a great kind of place to go to try and understand some of what our responsibility is as God's kids. Well, the first thing that we we discover or we want to say is that adoption is the basis for our Christian conduct. It's it's the basis. It's, It's the reason why we are to obey Jesus in His commands. And And there are three different aspects to this. One is that our behavior is meant to be a reflection or an imitation of our Father. And we, we find this in, in Matthew, in, in chapter 5, verses 44 and 48. I tell you, love your enemies. We've been praying for Sri Lanka and praying for the church over there. And this verse would be particularly relevant for them. But listen to the reason. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? That you may be children of your Father in heaven that you may be children of your father. And then Jesus goes on, you know, saying what difference, you know, what's the point if you do the same thing that pagans do and treat people the same way that non-believers do? And then he finishes this section with this statement, be perfect therefore or complete therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. There's this idea that as God's kids, we're supposed to be like our father. You know, this, the, the saying that we have, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, that's meant to be true of us that we as the apples are supposed to fall right under the tree of our Heavenly Father and to look and act like He would in love. There was a story about a man who was traveling from, I think it was from Glasgow to Edinburgh in Scotland, and he was enjoying the countryside and the beautiful scenery. And as he was driving down, he noticed on a hillside that there was a whole bunch of sheep that were all painted bright pink. And he was kind of intrigued by that. And when he asked uh, about it, he found out that in Scotland, one of the things that farmers do is they often paint their sheep with with its dots or patterns so that everyone knows who those sheep belong to. And, And this farmer had taken that to an extreme and completely painted his sheep completely pink so that everyone for miles around would know, oh, we know who those sheep belong to. And that's the idea here, right? 
that the way our world will know who we are is not because we wear a, a cross on a necklace or not because we have WWJD bracelets. They're cool. But the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying the way that people will know that you're the kids of your father is when you act like your father when you treat people like your father, when you love people like your father, when you forgive people like your father, and your heavenly father sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So if you want to be his kids, you got to learn to be transformed by his grace to the point that you can love your enemies. You can do good to those who oppose you and persecute you. You can be generous with your love because that's who your heavenly father is. The second thing about conduct is this idea that Jesus talks about where we want to honor our Father. We, we want to bring Him praise because He is so generous, because He is so amazing and wonderful. We want everyone to say, man, our, our, our Father is awesome. Our Father is amazing. Just like a little kid on the soccer field who goes, oh, my dad, he's the hero. He's the, he's the, look at my dad, he can do this. My dad's bigger than your dad. You know, all of that stuff that we do as kids, Jesus is saying that's, that's what your Father wants from you, to bring Him honor and praise and glory. And so in Matthew 5, when Jesus says, when you do your good deeds, do it in such a way that people who see it will glorify your father in heaven that's the reason because you're an adopted son you're an adopted daughter when you do good things praise goes to your father because again you're acting like he would to honor him the third thing about this idea of our conduct being based in our adoption is this idea of pleasing our father pleasing our Father. In Matthew 6, Jesus, in that whole section in verses 1 to 18, talked about giving and prayer and fasting. And you know that section where he talks about, do these things in secret because your heavenly Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Now, this is not Jesus saying, okay, this is how I'm going to tell you to get special treats from your Father. You do this stuff. No, it's not about that. Jesus is saying, when you do things and your only desire is to please your father, you don't care if anybody notices, whether anybody else sees it, whether anybody else affirms it and recognizes it. And if you want to do it for public praise, then you go for it. That'll be your reward. But if you do it because you just want to delight your father, nobody else might know, nobody else might see, but your heavenly father sees the things you do in secret. And he goes, that's my boy. That's my girl. I'm so proud of you. That's so awesome. If, if that is your motivation, that's getting to the place of understanding what adoption looks like from our end. We just want to please him. We just want to delight him and say, Dad, this is just for you. Nobody will know, but you know. And I just want to make you proud. I just want to make you smile and be pleased with me. So it's the basis of our Christian conduct. The second thing from our end is that it's the basis of prayer. This is the basis of prayer. And again, this, is, this shouldn't surprise us because in, in Matthew uh, 6, when Jesus is talking about prayer, he, he tells him to pray, Our Father. Our Father. You see, that's a radical shift. And it's based on this relationship that we are God's kids. And because of that, when Jesus teaches on prayer, he says your prayer should be personal. Because he's your father. Right? It shouldn't be mechanical and rote and repetitive. And so Jesus says, don't babble like the pagans because they don't have this relationship. 
And with their gods, they have to use all these words to try and manipulate them, to give them what they want. They have to try and badger them. They have to try and, you know, kind of convince them. But that's not how you should pray. Because you have a father. And so your prayer should be personal and relational and intimate and conversational and ordinary in that sense. No formulas, no theories, just you talking to your father. Personal, intimate. The second thing about prayer is that it should be, how do I say, cheeky, bold, audacious, and trusting. In Matthew 7, Jesus talked about, you know, knocking and keep on knocking, seeking and keep, and he says, ask and keep on asking. Because God's our Father, he, Jesus says, if you ask him for, you know, a fish, he's not going to give you a stone or, you know, he's, he, he's your father. Just like in your relationships on earth, as good fathers, you want to give your kids good gifts. So be audacious, be cheeky, ask for the things that are on your heart. But it doesn't mean you'll get what you want because Jesus goes on to say that our father is a good father who gives good gifts. And so he might say no to you and that doesn't mean he hasn't answered your prayer. He's just saying, no, that's not good for you. That's not going to help you. And I'm not going to give you that because that's actually not going to build our relationship. And so that's where the trust part comes in. Yes, we can be cheeky and bold and audacious in our request. And in fact, in Luke's account, when Jesus tells that same story, he talks about the parable of the woman who comes and just badges the magistrate. And in that, it actually uses the word audacious. Because of your audacious request, I will get up and give you what you ask for. And I love that word. Being audacious, but being trusting. Saying, God, if you say no, I'm going to trust it because you're my father and you know me and you know what I need better than even I know. I'm going to trust in your goodness and in your character and not see my unanswered prayer or my negative answer as being somehow a reflection of who you are to me. Personal, audacious, bold, courageous, and trusting. The last aspect is this idea of, and I've forgotten it, our security. Our security, Jesus kind of really grounds in our adoption. And for that, we go into the, the end of Matthew 6, where Jesus is talking about seeking first the kingdom. And see, when, when, we, when we want to take seriously God's word as our Father, and we want seriously to do His will, and we want seriously to honor Him and to serve Him, it may mean cost. It often means cost. It means denying ourselves. It means going without. It means loss of privilege, loss of comfort, loss of convenience, loss of other things. And in that context, we might be tempted to worry, to get anxious and go, well, God, if I honor you and if I serve you in this and if I'm faithful to your word and do your will, who's going to take care of all these other things that I'm going to lose because I made that decision? It might create insecurity and fear and anxiety and worry when we decide that we want to honor God. But Jesus, again, anchors our security in our adoption. And in, in Matthew 6, when he's talking about that, he, he says to them, but you can rest you can rest in this truth that your father, he, he, he knows. He, he knows what you need. He knows before you even ask him. He knows what challenges you're going to face. He knows what difficulties you're going to find yourself in. He knows 
everything there is to know about you. And you can rest secure in the fact that nothing you go through, nothing you experience is hidden from your father's eyes. Because he's always with you. He sees the heartache. He sees the pain. He sees the, the difficult consequences that flow out of your choices to honor him. He sees the pain. He sees the cost to you when you decide to serve him and no one else. He knows. And not only does he know, but Jesus goes on to say, but he cares deeply as well. And in that passage, Jesus uses birds and flowers to illustrate this truth, to say to them, don't you realize that your father sees you as infinitely more valuable than birds and flowers? And he cares for them and he feeds them and he clothes them. Won't he do much more than that for you? And obviously the answer is yes, of course he will. He grounds it in our adoption. Our security flows out of this fact that we are loved, that we are known, that we are cared for, that we are in relationship with our Father. And just to illustrate that, I've just got this story from uh, Dr. Helen Roosevelt, who's a missionary to Zaire. And she tells the following story. A mother at our mission station died after giving birth to a premature baby. We tried to improvise an incubator to keep, the, to keep the infant alive, but the only hot water bottle we had was beyond repair. So we asked the children to pray for the baby and for her sister. One of the girls responded, Dear God, please send a hot water bottle today. Tomorrow will be too late because by then the baby will be dead. And dear Lord, send a doll for the sister so she won't feel so lonely. That afternoon, a large package arrived from England. The children watched eagerly as we opened it. Much to their surprise, under some clothing was a hot water bottle. Immediately, the girl who had prayed so earnestly started to dig deeper, exclaiming, if God sent that, I'm sure he also sent a doll. And she was right. The Heavenly Father knew in advance of the, that child's sincere request, and five months earlier, he had laid it on the ladies' group to include both of these specific articles. How cool is that? That's our Father. We can be secure. We can pray. We can be audacious. We can be bold. We can be trusting because our Father knows and He cares. As we wrap up, and I'm going to get the guys to jump up, I want to, I want to challenge you if you're not yet a Christian. Like I said, a Christian is someone who's come to realize and be in relationship with the holy, righteous God of the universe as their Father through faith in Jesus. And that verse we started with in John chapter 1 says this. In 11, it says that Jesus came to His own and His own didn't receive Him. But to all who received Him, He gave the right, the privilege to become the children of God. And this morning, you can leave here as a child of God. And the reason you can is because the only true-born son, the only one who is the only begotten of the Father, He became human. He identified with you and me as broken, sinful humans. And He came, and, and the only time He experienced rejection from the Father, abandonment from the Father, was at the point of Him giving His life to save yours. When He became the sin offering, when He became the sacrifice for your sins. So He, the one who was born in the castle of the King, in the mansion of glory, left all of that because of His love for you. And He came pursuing you, 
laying down his life, taking on himself, your sin, my sin, your rebellion, my rebellion, that separates us from God, that rather than God being our father, makes God our judge. And he was judged. He experienced the judgment of his own father, the rejection, the forsakenness, and the abandonment and estrangement of the son from the father. In that moment, this perfect relationship of intimacy was broken for us so that we could be brought in to the family, so that we could be welcomed in, so that he could be our elder brother and say, come into my father's house. There's room aplenty and you're welcome. And the love of my father is big and broad and embracing and invites you to come and enjoy all that I have with my father. And that offer of forgiveness and grace and welcome is extended to you today. And I encourage you, if in your heart you feel a longing and a desire to know God as your Father, as a loving Father, then you can today. And at the conclusion of our service, we always pray for people, whoever they are and whatever their need is. And I encourage you, have the courage to come and let us talk with you and pray with you and tell you about Jesus and what He's done to bring you into God's family. And also, if you want prayer for anything else, if you're going through a whole bunch of stuff or you're sick and you'd like us to pray with you, stand with you, we'd love to do that. And if you want to be filled with God's Spirit, we've really been stirring and feeling in our hearts a real stirring to pray for people to be filled with the Spirit. We'd love to pray with you for that. But we're here to minister to you and to let you experience God's love for you this morning in community. So why don't you just take a moment to bow your head and close your eyes. And just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to impress something on your heart this morning. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.